everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance of the Choose the Hardway podcast. We are breaking down the first nine days of the tour and then trying to predict where this is going to go after today's first rest day. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get going? Yeah, as always, I'm Andrew Vance of the Choose the Hardway podcast the show about how hard things build stronger humans. You can find Choose the Hard Way everywhere you listen at Hardway Pod on social and at choosethehardway.com. This week, we have got Mitch Docker joining the podcast. Really excited to share this one. You may have caught his recent episode about lead out men. I talked to Mitch about his experiences as a lead out man and a lot of other moments from his world tour career and beyond. Come check us out and also have that Allison Jackson part two interview coming up here and on Choose the Hard Way. Pretty excited to share that. But I'm pretty excited, Spencer, to talk about how a bee sting may have changed the course of history, not just in our personal bike rides, but in the Tour de France. Yeah. So just to, to in the case you have a life and you were not watching yesterday's stage blow by blow, do you want to give people a little background on how this beasting maybe changed the outcome of the Puy de Dome stage nine uphill finish? Spencer, it's all you. This is where you shine. Benteo Jorgensen was stung by a bee, and th- but I did not see how much did he struggle with the helmet? What happened there? Yeah, so I we were both watching it live, and I immediately noticed, okay, he's got a bee in his helmet. It took them about five minutes to catch up to this on the broadcast because he eventually dropped back to the Medical motorcycle, which I feel we should all have a personal medical motorcycle following us when we're out riding. But uh, yeah, he clearly had something stuck in his helmet. If you've ever had a a bee sting you on a ride, which if you're listening to this and you're a human being, I believe there's a fair chance that that's happened. So you've probably ridden your bike quite a bit. Not a real, not a great experience. Not something you want to have happen. If it goes into your helmet, it's extra bad because if it happens to be a wasp, you're going to get stung multiple times on your head, Spencer. And, and then eventually, <laughs> yeah, you got to find a way to to kill it. Or if it's a bee, you know, one shot, one kill, it's done. But you still got to get the stinger out. So it looked like he had something fly into one of his helmet vents. Very hot day. But once again, we're seeing the benefits of marginal gains in aero equipment. Had he had a more aero helmet on, with less vents, the course of history may have changed. Eventually, he seemed to kill it or get it out. Then he dropped back. You could you could actually hear him in the broadcast. He was asking the medical motorcycle for not Ralph the motorcycle mouse. These were two humans on a motorcycle. And he asked them for an antihistamine uh, because, boy, some bad things can happen after you get stung with a bee, even if you don't go into anaphylactic shock and are not deeply allergic to a bee sting or wasp sting. Did they give it to him? They did, yeah. It, it, uh, it was funny. I mean, I'd like to learn more about what specifically they're carrying over there on the medical motorcycle, but the doctor got out like a, a filing, like a small filing cabinet of medications. It was kind of going through it for a while pulled something out, handed it to him, and he took it. And I don't think, I think you can't take your helmet off. I think it's no, like you can't. Yeah. 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 So that is like an extra level of inconvenience and pain for Jorgensen to have to keep that helmet on with a B in it. I mean, he, I thought he was going to win the stage. I, I was like, wow, the US of A, we're back. Matteo Jorgensen winning the stage. Mike Woods from Israel Premier Tech, who I don't know if you noticed this, they completely mismanaged the situation. He had a teammate in the move after Jorgensen attacked. It's actually pretty interesting to watch if you watch like the 10 minutes before Jorgensen goes. It's just kind of rolling attacks in the breakaway because everyone realizes if we take Mike Woods to the base of this climb, he's going to smoke us. We shouldn't do that. And you really see how hard it is to read it. Like Nielsen Palace always on the back foot, always missing the correct move, always attacking setting up attacks to go that then he misses um it's like a little educational video if you want to go back and watch that but woods has a teammate (laughs) it's a a bit harsh bit harsh spencer (laughs) well he's just every time like it would come back together nielsen just hits that front doesn't attack just kind of raises the pace really high strings it out tires himself out other people attack off that pace he's now too tired to respond i don't know what type of information he's getting from that car but 
I mean, he had a good ride. He's actually kind of, I think they say, made chicken salad out of chicken shit. He has a pretty good lead in this KOM classification. Might be able to um, bring it home, but it's really just about the HC climbs. I mean, really, you shouldn't. He shouldn't be sprinting for like mid mid stage stage four class four climbs. I think those are like two points, and then the HC climbs are twenty points. So maybe go for those instead. But Woods has a teammate who then starts attacking, drops himself. Woods is alone in this in the third group on the road. They're like two and a half minutes behind. Jorgensen, they get the Puy de Dome, which is a really hard climb. It hasn't been used since 88. It's kind of an odd, it's a UNESCO heritage site. There's like a pre-Roman temple at the top. There's no one, you can't even ride your bike up there normally. So it's like really crazy they got to use this for the race. Woods just, just goes into beast mode. Just no problems. Two and a half minute gap. I got it. He just, the guy stands up. Once he stands up, he never sits down and he just mowed everybody down. Caught Jorgensen in the last 500 meters. I was almost in tears. I had money on Matteo Jorgensen. I was peeved. Couldn't believe Woods caught him. But in retrospect, not a bad plan. Just to sit back there. Don't panic. Maybe it would have been better if his teammate wouldn't have dropped himself and he could pull and just keep that gap smaller. But I mean, you could see the size difference between them when Woods went past. Like Jorgensen's at a massive disadvantage on. I think it was 12% for the last 4K. Great win. Jorgensen was sad. I was sad. Question for you, Andrew. So... Lance Armstrong said this on his podcast the other day. I don't know if this is true. We're not going to fact check it. The USA, number one U23 cycling country in the world. Sounds right. Probably isn't. But what is happening to our riders between the ages, let's say 21, 22, and like 26? Like we just seem to get lost somewhere. Like Jorgensen, incredibly talented. Palace, incredibly talented. Probably could be GC threats in the right situation. And not that this wasn't awesome, like that's they both top 10 to a really hard stage, but I, I have a hard time not thinking their quality is greater than chasing these stage wins, Th- that they should be leading teams. Like, am I just off base here? Am I overestimating their ability? As a polemic, I enjoy your position. However, I think we both know that you're just describing going into what I call the TJ Vortex what once an american gets this label of you can win a three-week grand tour they go into a vortex they never go above like they never get into the top five ever again and then you end up in the uh the enios kind of like uh ghost climbing lead out thing that we've been seeing this whole tour which we will talk about i have this feeling they're just training for the 2024 tour de france but with the americans specifically it's it's funny because in my house I had a family reunion happening at my house here in Hope Maine for the past 10 days it was awesome to have the family around as you can imagine when watching the tour with people who are not deep core cycling fans they're of course familiar with the sport from my interest in it but a lot of like who's the top american type questions on every stage and you know throughout the last week I kind of kept telling the family we don't really need to worry about who is the top American. They're not going to concern yourself. Yeah. Don't, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. This is, that's not the thing to, to watch for, but I understand it's of course a point of fascination for Americans and it would be cool if we had someone who could win a grand tour. I have a, I have a variety of hypotheses about why that's not likely to happen and both. Yeah. But I, I don't, I think it would be a mistake to push any of these riders into that. Like, hey, let's go into the TJ Vortex type of situation versus let's target maybe one week stage races and let's go after stage wins. I mean, I think we're seeing this with Yates as well, right? Like we know Yates is never going to, he's not going to win the Tour de France. I mean, we knew Adam Yates or Simon Yates. Pick your Yates. Well, Simon has actually won a Grand Tour before. Adam Yates. I, I said never. I said Tour de France. So, well, what if Simon wins? No, you're. They're totally right. These guys aren't gonna. Those days are done. Like they're incredible one week stage races. They're not going. That's to what win. I'm saying. When you're a great, yeah. it's like the Richie Port paradox as well. Richie Port never should have pushed to try to be a three week Grand Tour winner, and specifically going after the Tour de France. Just like wasn't going to happen, right? But he was always a great one week stage racer. And I mean, it makes sense that when you have that profile of a GC rider, of course you want to be, you want to go for the Tour de France. We see this with Carapaz as well. He's never going to win the Tour. Sorry. Ouch. 
No, I mean, and maybe I've even misreading. Maybe Mateo and Nielsen are like classics writers that are only just outperforming what they should be doing at this Tour de France. Like they should be winning once week stage races. Classics. I mean, I think they're both top 10 at Flanders this year. You know, think about Amstel Gold or something like that. Matteo Jorgensen could absolutely win that. Palace has already won. San Sebastian. So yeah, maybe they're just, you're right. They should just go for stage wins. There is an American lurking. We'll get to him later. But before we do that, Pogacar versus Vindegaard, the big battle for the, for the win. Vindegaard seemed to, I think that was the last time we talked, had just crushed Tade Pogacar. And now Pogacar's pulling back some time, dropped Vindegaard on two consecutive uphill finishes. What do you make of that? The thing I found to be most interesting about Stage 9 and specifically about the climb to Puy de Dome, it was a psychological battle both for the stage win and in the GC. Because there were critical moments when Woods made the pass uh, of Jorgensen. I mean, he talked about this, and Jorgensen talked about it in the post-race interview. As people probably know by now, Jorgensen's radio cut out because, as we've discussed in previous episodes, race radios actually don't work. <laughs> they're like they're like Fisher Price toys you would pick up. Um, you can't even get them on Amazon. They're like a local dollar store. That's the quality of the communications equipment that seems to be getting used during the tour. So his team radio cut out when he had a 45 second lead on Woods. So he didn't he knew he was coming. He probably knew I can't hold this. And he said when Woods came by him, it scared, it actually scared him because it was so quiet and then he had heard the chain and was kind of startled. And then Spencer as you pointed out in your newsletter Woods did exactly what you should do in one of those moments, which is he probably was a bit below threshold as he approached, took a breath, and then drilled it past him, probably went, you know, super VO2 max for like 10 seconds and then settled back into his pace. And of course, because he's a smaller rider, uh, he's, you know, he's known for his ability to climb on very steep terrain. That was a 12% climb. So he did the exact right thing to break Jorgensen mentally. And I think we saw the same thing in this um, Pog uh, Jonas battle, right? So he makes the acceleration, and you could see on, you know, watching the helicopter shot, he had a small gap, and then it kind of like the rubber band was stretching a bit and stretching. And you could tell Jonas, of course, was struggling to stay on the wheel. And there was a moment when, like, perhaps he was going to follow, and then the elastic snapped, and then he reeled in a few more seconds at the end. But I, I mean, I have to bet that Jonas's confidence is pretty rattled at this point. That's a, a vulgar display of power. This Pantera. It was, a, it was a vulgar display of power. It was 400. This is estimated. The, the guy who does it, I actually, he's kind of a, I don't really enjoy him as a person or like a personality. He's kind of a, speaking of a vulgar individual, he like, I don't, we don't need to get into him. But he does great wattage estimations and he estimated Pogacar did like 475 watts for the last 15 minutes. So that's about 7.5 watts per Whoa! kilos for the last 15 minutes of the climb. So right there, you're not, no, no one is beating that. No one is matching that. The only thing you can do is limit your losses when that happens. I actually thought Vindegaard, I was surprised it was only eight seconds at the end because it was almost like the T, I thought something on the feed was broken because they were so close, but like Jonas looked Something looked wrong, but he wasn't really getting dropped. He was just kind of slowly slipping back. And it was like that for minutes. They get to a steep part. Taddy's sprinting the line. It's like, man, this is going to be 25 seconds. It was only eight seconds. I thought he recovered well. The only, and I agree, mental blow, right? Being dropped on two uphill finishes. I think we're learning Jonas is not a normal person. You could even call him strange, perhaps. I mean, the man marches to the beat of his own drum seems to just be completely disconnected from like the world around him. I think a lot of people read that as just com- just overwhelmed all the time or like, oh, this guy, the he's he's blinded by the bright lights. I-, I don't know if he is that rattled. It just seems like he it's everything's always the same to him. He can't read like, oh, I got dropped. Oh, I dropped Pogachar. And it's like the same reaction every time from him. So maybe he's going in thinking and in the aggregate, he's 17 seconds up on Pogacar at the first rest day. Last year, he was like 39 seconds behind him. Andy beat him. So Andy's going into terrain that's better for him. So not a terrible situation, but 
also not good to be getting just dropped at will on uphill finishes. Let me ask you this, Spencer. I know at the outset of the race, we all thought strongest rider, and in particular with the strongest team, is the individual who's likely to win the tour. That would that would make sense. Just generally, the logic of that flows. If you have strong teammates, but they can't do that one-two counterpunch like we saw last year with Primos and Jonas, which is really what finished off Pog. Is it actually that beneficial to have strong teammates or are your teammates just serving the same function that they would serve uh, on a, on another team? So I, I'm bringing this up because it seems like Yumbo is just pacing Pog for the moment when he's going to a, attack. So does he really need climbing domestiques if another team is doing the job for him? <laughs> it's like I sent you my talking points and you're just setting me up. Oh, perfectly. okay. Um, so... <laughs> So generally you're correct. Yes, that is a that is a good thought that well, okay, you can have this strong team, you pace, the guy who's stronger than your leader is gonna win. What was the point of that? But as I said, with like the 15 minute, 10 to 15 minute power, I mean, no, you're never gonna beat Pogachar. So how do you do that? You turn the climb into a 40 minute, 30 minute power contest. That's where Jonas is actually better than Pogachar. So when they get to the Alps, higher altitude, longer climbs. They can use that strong team to turn it from, you know, the mistake. And maybe what Puita Dome is a weird climb. Like that's just a strange climb. Maybe there was nothing they could do. But you could say the mistake is letting Pagachar go, quote unquote, easy until 15 minutes to go. He, you know, the, the same thing happened on uh, stage six. that so he just like flips the switch in his mind. 15 minute time. Let's go. You're in trouble if it hasn't been hard enough. What they can do in the outs of that strong team is, well, we're going to make it a 30-minute effort. And good luck, Tade, holding Jonas's wheel because this guy flies. Another thing is, I don't know if you've noticed this. I thought it was a mistake at first, but now I'm convinced it's not. Sepkus, every mountain stage, pulls, sits up. Instead of like, you know, if you're a dumb mystique, you should just sit up and let the gap go out. What do you care? Finish 10 minutes back. Walk up the mountain. Just save energy. He's riding hard. Like he finished just two minutes behind... Pagacha yesterday. Sorry, no, less than that. He finished with Jai Hindley basically yesterday. The guy is riding really, really hard every time he pulls off in a mountain stage. He's sitting, I was shocked to see this. He's sitting ninth overall, six minutes back from Jonas. I think what the plan is going to be, you wait till a really, really, really hard mountain stage, like let's say stage 17. Get him in the breakaway. Okay, now, now Tade, now, now what are you guys going to do? And normally you would think, well, Bora is going to pull, FDJ is going to pull, but those stages are so hard, those teams won't have any riders left. The only teams that are going to be up there are the Ineos Ghost Train, as you say, but Tom Pickock is also lurking. He could be in that breakaway. UAE and Yumbo. And if Yumbo sits up and says, okay, UAE, what are you going to do? And then they have to burn their team. It's not exactly the one-two of last year. That was beautiful. That will probably never rep be replicated, but it does give them kind of like a, a screw to turn against Pogacar. And as we saw, that's when they had success on stage five, when Henley was in the break, UAE had to set that hard pace all day, which does help Vindegaard, I think. I think that's when he really shines. You could just try to replicate that again with Sepkus. What are your thoughts at this point on Jai Henley, who everyone thought was going to have a long run in the yellow jersey? <laughs> I, yeah, that was, that was quickly ended. I mean... Looking back, should Yumbo have let him had a long run in the yellow jersey? You know, if they play that Tourmalet stage a little bit more conservatively and they don't drop him on the Tourmalet and he stays in yellow, potentially there, that's actually a better situation. But they got Jai's out of the way. He's not competing for yellow. I like him for third, you know, because he got such a big gap. He's almost two minutes up on fourth place. He's more than two minutes up on. Simon Yates, two minutes up on Adam Yates. I think Hindley could be a bit of a problem. I mean, maybe his climbing wasn't exactly what I thought it would be yesterday, but you know, he got dropped really early on the Puy du Dome and didn't lose a ton of time. So clearly he didn't fall apart. You know, he's a I think he's a very good climber. Maybe I'm too high on Jai Hindley, but in my mind, he he's just as good at climbing as Rodriguez, Yates one, Yates two, David Godu. <laughs> So I think they're going to have a hard time closing that gap on him. Yeah, the Wonder Twins did not activate. Looking at Pidcock's result yesterday, so he finished 16th. 
I don't know how closely you watched his body language, but knowing you, Spencer, I bet you took an awfully close look at it. <clears throat> I mean, he looked like he was putting in a life or death effort on Puy de Dome. Did you check out his body language? I was very confused by his body language. Like, I think what I was, was going on? One. Nico Roach was like, what is happening? He kind of looked like he didn't know that the stage one was up the road. Like, you know, instead of like, this is a GC effort, I just have to minimize time losses. That's the name of the game. I was like, is he about to, he was twitching. It was like the Alaphilippe twitch, like I'm about to attack. But it's like, well, what are you attacking for? You just need to get to the top as fast as possible for GC. And then, I mean, he did finish. I was, I was pretty impressed with the effort. He finished yeah. right with um, Simon Yates, who was right. cruising up that final pitch, dropped his teammate. I mean, maybe I'm getting sucked into this again. I think I said before the tour, there's no such thing as GC Pitcock. It's never happened. It never will. I don't know. I, I kind of think he's an interesting little uh, dynamic here in the mix for the GC. What about yourself? I don't, Am I crazy? Uh, you're definitely not crazy. I don't know if I see him as someone who actually could win the tour. In fact, I'll say I don't currently see him as someone who could win the tour anytime soon. Um, but yeah, watching him yesterday and again, this, this Enios ghost ship climbing lead out machine that, gosh, just like, I'm not really sure what's happening. They're putting in a lot of effort on the front of the race at moments that don't strategically make a lot of sense to me other than are they doing a Matthew Vanderpool? Are they training for something in the far distant, distant, <laughs> distant future? Tour 2024, yeah, like you said. Yeah, Tour 2024, something like we can't yet imagine that, that exists only in a wormhole that cuts through space and time. That's all that I can think about that's going on with Enios. I mean, even the fact Pitcock, I mean, he was all over that bike yesterday in the final pitches of the climb. I've, I've rarely seen a human fight a machine the way that he did. And yeah, I mean, he put nine seconds into his teammate. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing, man? What are you doing? I mean, I don't think, I, I don't think he knows what the GC is. I wouldn't be surprised if he's like, what do you mean? I dropped Carlos. We're like, well, he's, he's racing for this larger goal, the general classification, Tom. They have it here. Um, I mean, on one hand, it looked bad, but what are you going to do? Like, Carlos Rodriguez should have been following that move. You know, if on a pitch that steep, it's really just get to the top as fast as you can. And I think, I, I actually don't know what they're doing with these, these ghost ship lead outs, as you say. I, it sounds crazy i kind of wonder if they're practicing like if they see carlos rodriguez as a gc contender of the future and they're like well we're going to get him used to riding and lead outs on mountain stages so let's do it 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 kind of feels like they're uh they're getting, you know in f1 there's the red bull team and then there's the alpha towery development team for red bull it kind of feels like they're a development team at this race which is wild because they have the biggest budget by a long shot i'm not quite sure how they found themselves in this situation but Pickock. I, I don't see him winning this race. Something has gone terribly wrong right. if he wins this race. But you look at some of these mountain stages, like stage 14, and you imagine you can imagine Pickup getting into those breakaways and you know, really challenging for that final podium spot. You know, that's kind of kind of wonder if that's what Ineos has up their sleeve a little bit. Yeah, possibly. I'm taking a look at the standings in all of the different competitions that I don't care about. So I'm looking at the <laughs> right. I'm looking at the teams competition. Perhaps this was the case. Oh God, teams is bizarre. <laughs> right. I don't I, I still mean, don't understand how it works. Yeah, but if you're getting totally waxed at the tour, and again, Enios with the largest budget in the sport, they should be winning this race and they're not going to. And so then it becomes a question of, well, what are they going for? They're, they're trying to get somebody on the podium. They're trying to get Carlos Rodriguez on the podium. Probably he's sitting, you know, about a minute and 40, a minute and 38 seconds down on Jai Henley and Pitcock is in seventh at 526. So he's almost three minutes behind Jai Henley, which again, going back to Pitcock having this life and death fight with a Pinarello yesterday <laughs> like to put nine seconds into the guy on his team who actually is more proximate to Jai Henley and you know whether he has a better chance or not he is in fourth right now Carlos Rodriguez that doesn't make a ton of sense but maybe this is one of those 
you know what, let's try to win the team's competition. They're currently being beaten by Team Bahrain victorious. Uh, and boy, how about that that uh, Mohoric climb yesterday? Jeez, I did, was- not, I did not expect that. Unbelievable. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah, they're only 44 seconds behind in the teams. Andrew, Woo! I mean, we've been missing the forest oh, for the trees man. here. This is what the tour is about. They're gonna, they've got that. But yeah, Matty Motorich, I mean, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. The fact that he was third, because I was, you know, we were talking about him before the tour. You were saying as his time passed, he's not gonna get away anymore. Like uh, frankly, tomorrow's stage is perfect for him. That's yeah. the one he should have. He should have circled, but maybe he's thinking what you're thinking. That's too hard for me. It's too obvious for me to contest these motorich style stages. I'll just win a mountain stage. I'll just win one of the hardest summits of the tour. I was really impressed by that. What does it get him? I guess nothing. I guess it gives him the team's classification, but um, he's trying. He's trying stuff. It certainly increases the amount of stages I could potentially see him winning if he can climb like that to finish within what was he 35 seconds of michael woods that's a really good result on a climb yeah that's a hell of a result i'm gonna break the fourth wall here for a second clearly spencer and i are pronouncing mate's name differently i'm gonna switch to motorich going forward i'm gonna i'm gonna trust spencer on this one it's probably like a Mohorich. Mohorich. <laughs> and uh, I think we need to have a, a frank and open discussion now. This has been going on for years about is it Vinegard? Is it Vinigo? My son, Sam, who's seven, his, he's uh, critiqued me a number of times openly in front of the family now. He's like, Dad, it's Vinigo. You have to stop saying Vinegard. Well, so what, I, do, I what was, do we want to do? What do we want to do? I was working the phones this morning about this very, okay. very subject. And your son's been brainwashed by NBC, by the way. But I, so it's Tade. I, oh God. Now the, the, the problem is the Don't, wrong go, don't open that can of worms again. Yeah. Like Tade Pogacar, like Pogacar would be how they say it in Slovenia, I believe. And that the problem with it, it's Jonas. I mispronounce it on purpose. I say Jonas Vindigard. I think the, they say on NBC, Jonas Vindigo. That's not how the Danish say it. But the Danish say it in a way that basically we physically cannot pronounce it. It's like, Jonas Vidigu, Jonas Vidigu. So like, unless you want to walk around doing that, you could say Vindigo, but I believe that's almost just as wrong as saying Vindigard. You know what? Choose, just, yeah, choose your, own, choose your own adventure on this one. You know, if this is Candyland, if you get a pass to the next phase of the game, that's fine. So we're going to... I'm surprised they don't just have the writers at the start of every Tour de France, say your name into a camera. And then like, that's the clip that everyone just listens to. And then the name is in our head. Yeah. I feel like it would be remiss if we didn't talk about just the ongoing gratuitous cutaways as French writers get absolutely nuked, uh, either off the the lead group or the back of the pack. So when the action was really heating up with Woods and uh, Jorgensen yesterday, they, they cut to Godou and I think a couple of AG2R writers just, I don't know what group they were in, but they were just getting detonated like someone had rolled a grenade into the Peloton, which probably not a good joke to make. Um, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> yeah, hopefully no one actually does idea, that. Though. Yeah. But wow, they were just going off the back like they um, had been pulled off the stage. And that was at the exact moment that you know, Woods with, was within striking distance of making the actual pass. And the shot really, it really lingered. The commentators actually were like, no, no, go back, go back. <laughs> yeah, and if Guillaume, it's Guillaume Martin and David Godu. If there's FDJ riders being dropped, you're going to see them. Kofidis, you're going to see them. I thought they, they took it up a level yesterday. Not only were we getting just French riders being dropped, we saw Mike Woods win the stage. We saw Pierre Latour get second. And then the camera just didn't move. Just static shot of the finish line. People coming in 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th. Aerial shot of the Puy de Dome. Shot of Michael Woods drinking something, a mysterious substance. And we're like, what is yeah. going on in the rest of this race? And they cut back and the GC group's down to like five guys. I was like, what happened? Yeah. Why, did, why did they choose to show this? I mean, the directors at the Tour de France will never, will never be able to understand their vision, clearly. It was freaking bananas, but let's talk about that finish drink now. So the big finish drink is it's a it's like a Vitel bottled water, bottle. right? Yeah. It's it's a plastic bottle, but it's got something that looks like beet juice, but it's not 
I'd say it's drink, but we know that they're not sipping scissor after a stage that would probably did pop and, and a doping control if they were doing that. So what exactly are they drinking? Do we know? It's funny you said that's essentially what Nahar Quintana was doing last year. Yeah, but I guess you're right. I don't know. Is it is it like cherry Coke? Is that Maybe, crazy to think about? You know what? It could be it could be tart cherry juice. That would have some carbs and it's supposed to reduce inflammation. We need to. I, I'm going to go through some back channels and see if we can get the we answer to this question. Mike Woods. He'd probably tell us a very nice person. Yeah. Um, I. I mean, what, before we go into like what to expect, quick. Any Mike Woods thoughts? Yeah. What I mean, fantastic to see him finally win a tour stage. And gosh, I mean, I'm starting to wonder if 36 or 37 is the new 19. Like we have, you know, resurgent Garrett Thomas this year. We've got Mike Woods winning this stage although it was kind of like a tailor-made mike wood stage so the stage he'd been waiting for his whole life that 12 percent finish historically not the best downhiller in the peloton um so this these were favorable conditions for him and also as you pointed out that kind of stacked against him in that breakaway group because people knew he had the best shot at winning it and in a roundabout way we saw how it benefited him to have jorgensen uh get off the front and then the group slowly implode, which opened the door for him to go take the victory. But yeah, nice guy. Very well liked in the Peloton. Fantastic to see him take this win this late in his career. I have to imagine that this really opens the door for some big possibilities at Unbound 2024. <laughs> exactly. Um, and for us personally, I mean, maybe we could start winning tour stages. I mean, Mike Woods... He's a very good rider. I had actually kind of not noticed he's having it. He'd been having like a terrible 24 months. Like hadn't had a major stage win since 2021. Had won a Grand Tour stage since 2020. Um, was really, I think he DNF'd his last three Grand Tours. I personally was thinking we're, we're never going to have a conversation about this guy as a major winner. You know, he was still able to win these French races that they do in the lead up to the tour. I think he won the overall this last year and then he won a stage in the overall maybe the year before i kind of thought that was it for mike woods to see him come back i my johan Bernil said this uh, again i don't know if it's true but he said he's the oldest tour stage winner since 1974 um and i believe matthew grander matthew vanderpool's grandfather was the last one to be older than mike woods when he won a tour stage so really impressive i I feel like they kind of gloss over. He was a like a runner, like a collegiate level yeah. runner, and then he was a very good Canadian runner. And they kind of make it sound like, and then he decided he just wanted to race bikes. But I think there was like a stint of maybe not unemployment, but just like not great employment. Like his running career kind of fizzled out. I think he was like selling running shoes in Ottawa and didn't just have a lot of prospects and raced bikes like for pretty small Canadian teams. And really pulled himself up from an, a level that not many people get out of. Like if you re recall Phil Gaiman's book where Phil Gaiman was the star on Optum, um, they signed this no-name Canadian guy. They go to the first training camp and Mike Woods is just like crushing Phil Gaiman. Um, the fact that he's gone from like that training camp to now being a tour stage winner, it really blows my mind. I mean, I have a lot of respect for, for Mike Woods. Was he on Spider Tech? I have to imagine like that was that was kind of that continental level Canadian outfit produced riders like Steve Bauer. He missed Spider Tech. Spider Tech was like falling apart as he was coming up. He was on this team. It had some good riders. Team Louis, you know, like Louis Gagnier, Louis, like Team Gagnier Quebecor. They were like a French Canadian domestic team, but they were doing small races. Like I was racing against those guys, you yeah. know, and I, Mike Woods was not the best rider on that team. And then within three years, he's on Cannondale in the world tour. So really just like an impressive rise through the sport. You, don't, you do not see that very often. Yeah, the turning running. Okay, so let's see. So when he was 18, he had run a sub four minute mile. This guy, he's got a motor. Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, and I remember he did like some training camp. I think it was like 2011, 2012, right when he was getting into the bike on Maui, I was living there. And this, this dude, his name was Rusty Woods on Strava at the time. He was like nuking all my KOMs. Like who the hell is Mike Woods? And then he broke Roger, Ryder Hedgedahl's time at Polly Auckland. I think that's what got the attention of Jonathan Vodders and got him on Cannondale. Eventually. I, I like the subtle flex there, Spencer. 
I mean, he was nuking my times though. I was at the time I was like, this sucks. Who is this random guy? But yeah, I mean, clearly a motor that, but I guess that shows that at 18 to run a sub four minute mile, probably in Canada, you're no longer in high school in the U S you would be, but you're a super, like you're a budding superstar runner. And then it didn't really, I don't think he was ever like at diamond league level. So it must've been kind of a tough time for him when you know, not panning out the way he thought his running career would. Little did he know he'd be winning Tour de France stages, like what, 10 years later, more than 10 years later. It's really mind blowing. You want to talk a little bit about, so tomorrow this like teases up perfectly. It's actually a kind of a perfect stage for your guy, Victor Campenarts. If he's going to win win a stage, it's tomorrow. But unfortunately, it's also a perfect day for Vanderpool and Van Art. Let's do our check-in. Let's do our superstar check-in. How do we feel about Vanderpool and Van Art at this point in the race? They're both going to somehow pull out a stage win and turn things around. They're winners. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I definitely agree that Vander, like no one can do this, but they could both be like, I really need to win a stage. I'm just going to focus and win tomorrow. And they could win, <laughs> win tomorrow's stage. I, you know, I do think Van, Van Art, it's just little things. I actually think he's counting on his team too much in these sprints. If you go back and watch last year, not a, not a Yumbo teammate to be found leading him out and he was just crushing people. He keeps like sitting behind his teammates and it's almost like he's not able to comprehend that they would be tired. Like, come on, man, like just go faster. It's like, I've been working all day for Jonas on the front. I don't have anything left. And then he's getting jammed in because he's, he's too far back. Um, I think he, he definitely wins a stage. Vanderpool, were you a little, am I off base here thinking like 2019, 2020, he wins that stage seven uphill sprint with his eyes closed. Like it's not even a competition. Now he's leading out Jasper Phillips and it's hard for me to wrap my head around. Right. And Jasper, the blaster is, is on quite a run right now. He's got a hot hand, which is everything in sprinting. His confidence is high. Who knows where Vanderpool's is. He just, he seems like a, I mean, he is a bit of a Drago character, but also I think we've seen some erratic levels of confidence and and emotional behavior from him. Right. So being in the breakaway on stage six, being one of them, what, what was that about? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. You have to imagine he wants to walk away from this with, uh, his head high, having done something more than just let his teammate out, which, but I don't know, like when you've got a sprinter, who has got a hot hand, you want to, you want to go and you know, you got to know when to fold them, know when to hold them, know when to go for a stage win and know when to, to not run if you're Mike Woods, right? yeah yeah exactly i said that wrong i said stage seven it made total sense that he was leading him out on stage seven i thought he was a little tired from his breakaway but yeah stage eight was the one that was uphill but did you say i mean phillips didn't get in second place that's really to me that's more impressive than his three stage wins that's wild that shows me yeah he'll probably win the points jersey it's hard to imagine him not winning that now we do kind of speaking of things you don't care about i think Unfortunately, I have bad news for everyone. So tomorrow's stage, the good news is we'll have probably superstars in the breakaway, but that's going to be breakaway. Stage 11, breakaway or sprint. Stage 12, that's definitely breakaway. Like you're going to see the Peloton on cruise control until we get the stage 13 on, I believe that's Thursday. But this is going to be big for, for the green jersey. And I think for the first time in a long time, we might have like an actual competition because Wout Van Aert doesn't know he's racing for the green jersey, but he's racing against Jasper Phillips who's trying with all his might to win the green jersey. But some of these sprint points are like tomorrow's is on a climb. So you'd imagine Phillipson won't get that. Um, The net one, the name after is in the middle of two climbs. So who knows what will happen there. And then you just get all these sprint points dropped into the middle of mountain stages. Phillipson could start to come back a little bit in that green jersey classification, which would explain why they wanted him to go for the uphill sprint on stage eight to stack points while he could. What happened to Sam Bennett, Spencer? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm just sorry, just yeah, the, the green jersey thing made me immediately think uh, about yeah, Sam so, Bennett. Like speaking of hot, hot hands and then evaporating yeah. off the face of the planet. Yeah, I think he's he's not at the tour. He's racing another he won like some small race during the tour. His board team, the weirdest thing about Sam Bennett, I think he's done the tour once in like the last five years and he won the green jersey when he did it. His board team brought Jordy Meos, who's probably not going to win a stage. You know, he's really like a podium on a sprint stage would be good. So I don't understand. And 
Sam Bennett had a falling out with his former team. He left, I think he left Bora. God, let me look this up. I don't want to say this wrong, but well, in my the, memory he had, is he had a Lefebvre fight and left, right? He got stuffed. He wasn't taken to the tour. They took Cavendish, I believe. Right. But yeah, so he, he was on Bora, was mad he wasn't getting enough chances, left to go to Quick Step. He was on Quick Step, mad he wasn't getting enough chances, left to go back to Bora. Now he's on Bora. Maddie's not getting enough chances, leaving to go to, I believe, human powered health next year is what I've heard, okay. which is quite the fall for someone who won the green jersey in 2020. Um, really hard to wrap your head around that. Yeah. It sounds like there's a bit more to the story there than, I, than meets the yeah. eyes. <laughs> it, none of yeah. it adds up. There has to be some personality clash with yeah. every team that he's ever been on. Yeah. Okay, that's taking me in the direction of, I mean, the Cavendish thing has kind of been litigated to death on Twitter or on the new Facebook without pictures threads. Okay, it's, if he comes back, the, you know, Vino is saying that he wants him to come, pa- come back. Also, like a Vino, that Vino Intermarche alliance that briefly formed... <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in 35 years of following this race. Uh, so fun to see them go into the trailer together to to try to yank back that win. Um, but if Cavendish goes on the Enios ghost ship, then, I mean, how do you do that and have Pidcock or whoever your prospective GC winner is in 2024? I'm not sure how you juggle that. So I'm not sure that we actually could see Cavendish going back to Enios, which has been discussed a bit. And then the other thing that's on my mind right now is like, what's going on with Philippe? Where does he go? Yeah, that's another thing I have written down. One of the weirder tours I've seen from Philippe, and I actually went back, I rewatched Unchained, and Lefebvre, it it was wild at the time because Philippe was world champion last year, doesn't get selected for the tour. Yeah. Everyone thinks Lefebvre's gone crazy. This year, he, he does bring him to the tour, and now we're here, and we're thinking he shouldn't have brought him. I mean, the guy is just straight up not fit. And I, I should have looked at this before I wrote my pre-tour newsletter, but I, he got dropped so early in the French National Championships the week before the tour that I didn't even know he was in the race. That's not a good sign for fitness. And he's not only is he not able to contest stages that he would be contesting in years past, but did you see him attacking at the bottom of the Tourmalet on um stage six like what 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 is going on there buddy this is like one of the hardest climbs in the in the sport and you think you're gonna like sneak your way off the front and then yesterday misses the move and he's doing like the you know it's like small french team misses the breakaway and they're chasing in vain like just odd behavior from him that shows panic and that he's not fit and then that team in general has been very disappointing to me obviously fabio jacobson crashing a little bit out of their control but they didn't look that good before he crashed. And then on stage, it was the uphill sprint stage, stage seven, stage eight, where they have Tim McClurk in the breakaway. Casper Askren attacks out of the peloton with like a minute and a half gap. He's never going to bridge the gap. You're like, what? This is like a Kofidis move from five years ago. What, what is happening here? It clearly fails. Alaphilippe isn't really able to contest the uphill sprint, which he maybe would have been able to in years past. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, it's it's pretty wild to watch. I don't have any explanation for it. Yeah, I don't know what's going on at Quickstep. Fabio Jakobsen, it looks like the mummy riding around in France right now. He's got. I mean, he went down so hard. Oh, that it's going to be tough for him. That was a brutal crash. And again, going back to sprinting being a confidence game, you have to imagine with what he's been through, going through that crash, having his SL7 break in half and become a physical shiv that's got to be a pretty rough one to recover from mentally and even if they get him back into position in the handful of stages left that might result in a sprint you just have to imagine his confidence is totally rattled i have no idea what's going on with alaphilippe it's almost like a combination of sagan syndrome crossed with you know peak thomas volkler i don't know like pulling faces get, I, there's yeah just, Something weird that's going on. I mean, he'll always have the world championship title. And if you take a look around at other top French talent, I almost wonder if you can get a uh, an Alaphilippe goatee stencil 
somewhere on Amazon that you can, uh, <laughs> you can use along with a, a trimmer just to get like replicate that look. It seems to be incredibly popular with the- Well, are there any young, like there's probably some young talents out there Quickstep could sign, right? To have brought to this race. Is yeah, there any absolutely. like good young riders you could think of in the sport? Like, like Remco Evenepoel, world champion, actually 23 years old. I, you know, yeah, that's of course, like there's the Remco question that's going around as well. To me, that's another, it's just a confidence thing. I think that, that if Remco, I, I just don't think he can handle the, the crushing blow, even if it would give him the experience that he needs to be a tour winner in the future, which he could potentially do. I think he does have the talent. I just think that psychologically, I don't think he could handle showing up and getting his ass kicked the way it would have gotten kicked this year. Like it would have really stifled his development, which suggests there's some other development that needs to yeah. happen. <laughs> and, and, I, and I am aware that he's on quick step. That was a joke yeah. for everyone listening. Yeah, yeah, but totally. I, yeah. Do, I do agree with you. I think they didn't bring him because they don't want him to lose to Pogacar and Vindegaard and for his confidence to be shattered. shattered. This seems like it could be an issue at some time. He's pretty much the same age as Tade, and he just doesn't race, big race. He's never been to the Tour de France. At some point, he has to go. Maybe they just wait for Pogacar to retire in 10 years, and then they send Evanepoel. Um, is, he, is he ever going to do the Tour of Flanders? Like, I don't know. It just seems like they're, they're cherry-picking races. They only know they can win with him, and at some point, that runs out, especially in the Belgian media. It, the, it actually really bothers me personally. I, I hate this approach. I mean, just send him to a good race. And if he gets beat, he gets beat. It's not about just winning every time. It's about competing against the best and getting better by doing it. Just go. But it's also like, this is a turd of a team they brought. I, I mean, maybe Lefebvre knows he can get away with this, that the sponsors are just so happy with everything else that they can send a terrible team to the Tour de France while they have the world champion sitting at home, not at home. He's actually had a pretty hard training loop in Italy yesterday, I saw. But I don't know. It just seems wild that they have this terrible team and they have the quite literal best rider in the world on their team, not at the race. What specifically do you find to be terrible about this team? I mean, they're completely underperforming. We're on the same they're page old. there. Al Philippe, I don't know what's going on. He shouldn't be in this race. Lefebvre, I hate to say this, but you were right. You should have uh, should have listened to yourself from a year ago before selecting for the team I this year. But you what, nailed it. Yeah. What else do you not like about their squad? Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, like, like personally, I'm sure they're all great people. You're all you're all nice. Start, we love you. But let's talk about them relative to the other teams and level of talent. Michael Morkov, or I guess knowing what we know now about the Danish language, Michael Morkov or Michael Morgo, 38 year old lead out man. You know, wh where could that go wrong? And this. You know, he was, a, he was like the best lead-out man in the world, probably in 2021. That's 24 months ago. Like, your performance drops up quick. And then you have, like, this is just like a greatest hits album. Yves Lampard, Dreves Devenens, Tim DeClerc, Remy Cavagna, Casper Askren, who, who I do like, I think is maybe in a slump, though. Yeah. Julian Alaphilippe. All these guys, it's kind of like, yeah, two, three, four years ago, they could pip out wins against really, really good <laughs> riders. But they've all just gone over the wrong side of the hill. I'm sorry. Age is a thing. <laughs> Call me ageist, Patrick, but this is a problem. I, I don't know what he was thinking when he built this tour roster. A great squad for the Tour of Flanders. <laughs> it is. Right? right? It's it was like, like 2018 Tour of Flanders. <laughs> woof, that's a race-winning squad right there. You know, you pull Philippe Gilbert off the motorbike, put him in the race, like you've got a perfect classic squad. That's it, baby. And you've even seen in the, in the classics that, you know, and I really like Lampere, um, Cavagna, Askren, Devenins, DeClerc as riders. I think like in, the, in their prime, they served a great role and they were able to perform above their level. The collective, their collective results were better than their individual parts. But you're just, they're not even getting the results they get in the races that suit them anymore. I mean, they, they've been terrible in the classics for two years. It just doesn't even seem like a team that you would put together to send to the biggest race in the world. It, it frankly seems a little insulting to their sponsors, but maybe their sponsors are happy with a Liège win and, and maybe uh, a world championship win and a jersey that isn't theirs? <clears throat> to move in a different direction, this, again, this has kind of been litigated to death on social media. I'm wondering about larger patterns in Mark Cavendish's career 
and where he liked to position himself in the peloton. Is it the case that he was the kind of rider that would just kind of sit in back all day and then move up and, you know, the last part of the race, was he back there doing something specific? Was he out of position when he had the wreck? Are there any details that we haven't heard about already that might shed a little more light on why that happened? He was definitely really far back. He was really, he was really far back. I mean, he was maybe in the last 10% of the peloton. I think this speaks to, I have not, it, since you've asked that question, I have not been able to go back and rewatch every race of his career, unfortunately. But it's, you know, this team is not strong. The team he's on is, is, is very green and just doesn't have manpower, firepower. So he can't, he probably just had to sit at the back. If you think when he was on Sky, when he was on those teams in the past, HTC, big engines on that team. They could keep him well positioned throughout the entire race. Like, I think he made the split 2020, 2009 tour split. Armstrong's up the road. Contador's stuck in the back. Cavendish was in that move with George Hincapie because Hincapie was a massive engine who, who could keep him up there. He just doesn't have team support like that anymore. I think it's it's really hard for him to position himself because he doesn't have like a high FTP. He has to, you know, just kind of ride wherever he can. Are we going to see Caleb Ewan win a sprint this year or is he done? I think we will. I, he was not. The problem is he lost. He was really good on stage four in the auto, on the autodrome, however you want to say that. He was not as good on the stage seven sprint, I believe. Um, he, he was like, the problem with you, and as I've, I've noticed this a lot throughout his, the last two or three years, he's in really good position with like a K to go, 500 meters to go. Then he's just gone. He'll just get lost. I, I kind of worry that it's sprints are becoming less controlled, thus harder. And then that um, gives the advantage to sprinters with higher functional threshold powers. Like Philipson is just, a really, really, really good rider who happens to sprint. He's not a traditional sprinter. And that if you have a low FTP relative to the rest of the group and are just really punchy with good aerodynamics and relatively high sprint power, it's getting harder for you to hold position. You know, that would be my only guess because he'll just disappear at times in the last 500 meters. But as far as sprinting, he, he looked really good on stage four. Yeah. There's, a, there's like three more sprints probably left. I, I definitely think he could win a stage. Yeah, I mean, I've gone back and rewatched all the finishes, as I'm, I'm sure you and most of the people listening have. He just, But you're right. He just seems to be getting totally lost in some of these instances where you would expect him to at least, I don't know, be in the first 20 riders. I kind of have had a hard time picking him out. Uh, I also wanted to talk about... But uh, the stage that mods won, was that stage eight? Stage eight, yeah. really an impressive yeah. win. Stage eight, the thing that I thought about that stage is that uh, 2020 to 2022, Pagacha would have won that stage. Like he would have gone for it. I, to me, that shows like a bit of maturity, restraint, because I, I just feel like I'm, there was an almost identical stage, I believe, last year that I that he went for and we didn't see him do it this year. I mean, he was up there, but he wasn't trying to actually win the sprint. So that was one of the main things that stuck out to me about that stage. What did you have any thoughts on that other than seeing Jasper the Blaster up there was pretty impressive as well. I had the same thought about Tadei that this this is a stage he tries to win, probably finishes second and third in in last year's tour. Um, that's probably a really, if you, if you have money on Tade Pagachar to win the tour, that's a really good sign that he's learning not to always be, um, he doesn't always need to be trying to win every stage, especially when it takes a massive toll on your body. Like I'm sure Mads Pedersen is still tired from that, but here's just a quick little like stats lesson on Mads Pedersen. I found this unbelievable. So 12 months ago, the guy had never won a grand tour stage in his career. Flash forward one year, do you know where he is all time amongst, sorry, amongst active riders in Tour de France stage win rankings? This is like not just in the last, in the last 12 months, he's won more Grand Tour stages than anyone in the sport. He is 21st amongst active riders in Grand Tour stage wins. Like he, I don't know, for what is it, I don't think of him as a superstar like Vanderpool, Van Art, et cetera, Tade, but the guy just all he does is win. He just wins Grand Tour stages. It's it's unbelievable what he's doing. Yeah, he's having a hell of a year. Um, 
I just keep wondering where his teammate Kenny is. Kenny Ellison. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to see him. He's too tucked in. I know, but is he in the tour this year? There's, I don't think so. Yeah. Let me, I would Kenny, I mean, Kenny has had some big rides with mods. That's why he sprang to mind for me. So I've had an eye out for him, but I haven't seen him around. He's not in the tour. Okay. But that actually, I mean, the fact mods is a big, big dude. The fact that he's going on training rides with probably the smallest person in the Peloton, he's probably suffering on a lot of those climbs and it shows the guy is in really, really good shape. Um, yeah. Apparently he went to that town like June 5th. Yeah. Recon the stage. They decided this is the stage we're going to win. We're going to win it. And I do wonder if that gives them a, a major leg up on, you could say more talented riders um, like Vanderpool, Van Art, because I guarantee you June 5th, Van Art. Not taking time out of his schedule, probably to go to a small French village and recon the uphill finish of one of the stages of the tour. He's just thinking, I'm going to win every stage. So, uh, boom, done. Thought experiment completed. Uh, but Pedersen, like, really putting in the work to find an advantage over the rest of the guys. Yeah, it's reminded me of Mike Woods yesterday as well. Horses for courses. These guys know when to shoot their shot. They do the work, they do the recon. And then when the moment comes, they deliver, which is impressive. That's what the Tour de France is about. Going back to Caleb Ewan for a second, another thing that I've been reflecting on watching the Tour this year, if everyone listening knows what a big Campanaritz fan I am. I I have been hoping that we see him do something spectacular in this race. He's certainly been trying to make it happen, hasn't done so thus far. As it pertains to Caleb Ewan, taking a look at the, the Lotto Destiny lead out train Campanerts is so compact and so aerodynamic i'm actually wondering what the utility is of having him you know the the, the function that he plays in the lead out because i don't think you're getting much of a draft off that guy when he's in the front no i agree it's like wow rimco will drop a sprinter because he's so arrow it's the same thing where and i think it's probably been a problem for Campanerts' career that He's not, he's a good time trialist. He's not going to win big time trials. He's good at climbing. He's not going to win on a mountaintop. And then the fact that the problem is if you're just a big, powerful rider who can put out a lot of watts, you'll always have a job because you can just sit in front. People can draft off you when you're as arrow as Campin Arts is. It's maybe good if you're trying to win a grand tour stage, but it's not good if for the team because no one can draft off of you. It makes it really tough to, uh, to find a job at times. Yeah, so we'll see where that goes for him. But I've seen it repeatedly where he's drilling it in you know, the last 5K when the lead-out's really starting to pick up. And I'm just, I just look at the riders behind him. And we've Did all... Did no draft? Yeah, we've all, we've all been there on a group ride where the person who's a foot shorter than you and is you know can ride with their, their back parallel to the top tube and they're, you know, they're on 36-centimeter bars. You're not getting a draft. And you're like... I just wish someone larger was in front of me right now. <laughs> I have to imagine that's what it feels like to be in that lead out train. Well, I've got to run, Andrew, but I mean, I would keep an eye on tomorrow and Thursday for your guy camping arts. If he's going to win a stage, that's when it happens. Yeah. So everyone be on the lookout. If, if he has a 65 tooth ring on the uh, front tomorrow, stand clear. Yeah, last 25K all is all downhill. That 65 tooth will, will come in handy. That's where he loves to attack. That's really, you know, speaking of horses for courses, we'll see him maybe on a 65 with a classified rear hub. Shout out Tom Boone. Did you notice yesterday that Matej Mohoric, however you want to say his name, was in the breakaway? It'll be, you know, just a descent, like a pretty routine straight descent and he is not pedaling and then everyone behind him is sprinting to stay in his wheel because he the guy just for some reason could just slice through the air better than anybody else yeah it is pretty wild he has a, a very arrow shape and also probably a bit more mass right so he's cutting through the air and he's got gravity pulling him down those descents with incredible yeah, grace a- yeah i mean i feel like we would be remiss before we went if we didn't note that something very strange is going on with descending in this tour. The super tuck, of course, has been banned. It seems that the new position that is in vogue is to actually insert the front portion of your saddle into your backside because you remain in contact with the seat that way and are in a super arrow position. This does not look safer to me 
Spencer, than being in a super tuck. Oh, it has to be more dangerous. It has to be. We're, I mean, <laughs> I feel like we're going to have an impalement at some point in this tour. This position is, yeah. this position has got to go. UCI, I know that you listen to this podcast carefully. You follow our guidance. We would like to see this removed from the sport. We find that it's, it's dangerous and it's got to go. Bring back the super tuck, UCI. You know what to do. Matty Motorich needs it if he wants that stage win tomorrow. Um, oh, and, and I forgot we were talking about Garrett Thomas is like kind of odd, unique riding style where he does also seem to kind of put the tail end of the saddle up his, up his rear end. It must come from the track, right? That must be something he came up with when he was a pursuiter. And then that's why he has a more rigid style than almost anyone else in the sport. Yeah, I'm going to take a closer look because uh, people ride with their saddles all the way forward now. That's just generally what happens. And there are UCI rules limiting seat angles and where your the tip of your saddle can be relative to your bottom bracket. I wonder if that has something to do with it where you they can't actually put the saddle into their preferred position because it would put them into triathlon territory closer to a, a 90 degree angle which of course is banned along with arm warmers and uh tank tops can't wear those in pro cycling either you used to have to wear a collared shirt until like five years ago yeah. and have a collar on the jersey yeah that's an important rule thank you uci yeah. but andrew thank you for joining us we will we're actually so it's going to be i would i would dare to say boring next few stages but the weekend is going to have some some big days and then so we'll be back probably to talk before next Tuesday's time trial. It's the freaking weekend. <laughs> <laughs>